Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we'll be considering this, these two verses, verses 4 and 5. We'll look at the context in a moment, but the, the two verses before us are uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to give us wisdom and grace and understanding, Lord, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word and open your word to our hearts and minds, Lord. We truly desire to know what you have said to us, to know it correctly, and we pray, Lord, that it would become effectual in our lives, Lord, and that it would use, you would use your word and work in us by your spirit to change us, to Wean us away from this world, Lord, to cleanse us from sin and to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we, uh, you know, celebrate Christmas, we look at all the various verses, you know, actually uh, in trying to decide what to preach today. I knew I was going to, by God's grace, preach the gospel, but that's a pretty wide subject in many ways. You know, it's to preach Christ and to preach his coming. You know, at Christmas time, we focus on that. So if you were to look through my notes, you'd find there's about five sermons that I started and including this one. And then finally, no, I think this is the one I need to do after much prayer and consideration. Um, and so I hope and pray that this will be a blessing to you. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul, throughout the Holy Epistle, he's been setting forth the nature of the gospel, that it's not by ceremonies, it's not by works, it's because of Jesus Christ and his coming. And so when we come to this fourth chapter, um, he speaks of Christ being the one that has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, and he's brought us into this relationship of sonship, as you saw there in verse uh, five, the last thing he says is that we might receive the adoption as sons. So he's speaking of Christ. Before this, he had spoken of why Christ came. Uh, he's writing to the Galatians. Their problem was they'd had what we call Judaizers come in, people who told them you have to be in compliance with the Mosaic law and the ceremonies that are attached to it, uh, meaning not just the Ten Commandments. Uh, we shouldn't have a problem with that. That's very clear. That's the moral law. That speaks to us as image bearers of, uh, to God. And so that law is definitely applicable in the Christian life. But the ceremonial laws were types and shadows until the Messiah would come. Once the Messiah came, those things were brought to an end. In the book of Daniel, it says that uh, after, the, uh, after three and a half days, meaning three and a half years, and the context in there, contrary to what some try to say, uh, the context clearly is a reference to the Messiah, that he will bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. I'd like to read that passage before we go on in Galatians. In uh, Daniel chapter 9, speaking about the coming of the Messiah, that had been Daniel's prayer, at verse 24, the angel Gabriel told him, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 
Now it's generally understood 70 weeks each day standing for a year, so be 490 years. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and literally the Hebrew is the vision and the prophet, um, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, now note this, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The seven weeks has to do with the 49 years when they returned and they began to rebuild the temple and the wall and the city under Nehemiah and Ezra. After that, then the 62 weeks began until the Messiah would come. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, referring to the death of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the debate is the prince that's to come. The only prince that's been referenced so far is the Messiah. Uh, but what's going on here? Well, generally, the more historical commentators, non-dispensational ones, will say, well, that has a reference to uh, Christ sending the Roman army to destroy Jerusalem after they'd gone back in and began to offer sacrifices after the veil of the temple had been torn in two at the death of Christ. And their sacrifices, as Isaiah said, became abominations. Remember, Isaiah had written, uh, the time will come when the one who offers a lamb will be as if he slew a dog. And he who offers an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. Um, he says, even as they have chosen their abominations, God said, I will bring their fears upon them. And so the, the prince who's to come, like I say, the only one referenced in the text so far is the Messiah. Uh, and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Uh, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Remember, Jesus told Jerusalem, only you'd known this your time, but now your, your city is left unto you desolate. And so that's what happened. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Again, I, I hate to have to deal with the false teachings on this, but the context is it's the Messiah that does this. You know, the dispensationalists have all this fantasy that, well, that's the Antichrist. He's going to rise up and he's going to confirm a covenant with many and the temple will be rebuilt, etc., etc. If you read this in context, it's talking about the Messiah. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That would be that 70th week. And then note, and in the but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. It's exactly what Jesus did in the middle of the week after three and a half years. He died on the cross. The entire book of Hebrews tells us that he brought sacrifice and offering to an end. The veil was torn in two. If you read the book of Hebrews, it tells us those things have been done away with now. That's not how we approach God or worship him. Um, again, the dispensation say, well, in the middle of the tribulation period. And by the way, this verse, once you get this right, that whole system just crumbles because they're always referring, oh, you know, in Daniel 9, it says the Antichrist uh, goes in and after three and a half years, sits in the temple, declares himself to be God. It's like, no, that's not what that's teaching there. And they base all their other false teachings on their misinterpretation of this passage. So it's important to get this right. He, the Messiah, I remember talking, there's a, a very, he's with the Lord now, but he's a very popular, well-known dispensationalist 
teacher at one of our local Bible colleges years ago, and we were talking about eschatology, and I said to him, I said, you do know Daniel 9, he is the Messiah, grammatically. He said, well, yes, he said. He admitted it to me. And then yet, later I asked somebody, they said, oh, yeah, I took Dr. So-and-so's class on, uh, you know, eschatology. I said, on, Dan, on the book of Daniel, actually. And I said, well, what did he do when he got to Daniel 9? What did he say that was? He said, well, that's the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation. So apparently, from my conversation, he didn't bother to go back and change his notes, I guess. But that whole system stands on their misinterpretation of this. The Messiah confirmed the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he died and brought sacrifice and oblation to an end. And on the wing of abominations, that is when they went back in and continued offering sacrifices, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. That is, until Jerusalem was destroyed. And so that, that 70th week, well, when did it end? Probably at the martyrdom of Stephen when the disciples were driven out of Jerusalem and only the apostles remained. And then, as Jesus said, this generation shall not pass till all these things are fulfilled. And at 70 A.D., for, within the 40-year period from Christ's ministry till 70 A.D., Everything was fulfilled and the temple was destroyed. Now, the reason why I wanted to go over that is we come back to Galatians. It's important to understand that we don't worship God with types and shadows now. The whole temple uh, worship is done away with. The temple's not going to be rebuilt. If they try, we'll, it'll be interesting to see. You know, Julian the Apostate, who was uh, Constantine's son, he was not a Christian. He tried to rebuild the temple several times just in opposition to Christianity. And it actually says, I guess, because of the gas deposits or whatever it was the, in the ruins of Jerusalem, three times fire came and set out of the earth and consumed the workers. And so they couldn't get anybody to work on it after the third time that happened. So they gave up trying to build the temple. Now is the Mosque of Omar or Alaska is planted there on the Temple Mound. Uh, and, you know, but the dispensationalists have their hope. They get, get feverish that we're going to be able to go back in and offer blood sacrifices. They've got the red heifer and all the stuff there. You know, it's just like, no, guys, that's all been done away with. The Messiah came. He brought that to an end. Those were types and shadows. That's not going to happen. Jesus Christ is king of kings. He now is in the, the real tabernacle in heaven. He is the real tabernacle in heaven. So we come back to Galatians chapter 4, and let's read the uh, first few verses. Now I say, Paul says, this is four one, that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Okay, Children are under authority, under rule. They have to do what they're told. But it's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. So he said, you know, we were under bondage. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So he's saying that at the right time, and we're going to consider that in a moment, a bit more, at, in the fullness of the time, when it had arrived, when it had come, God sent forth, literally sent out, his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I'm referring to the incarnation of Christ, him taking a true humanity. Christ, who was sinless, was nevertheless under the law. 
wasn't a problem for him because he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, body, and strength at every moment of his existence as a child in the womb, as a little baby, as a little boy, as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young man, and then as a fully grown man. Christ always did that which was well-pleasing to the Father. He was born without a sinful nature. He did not partake of Adam's sin. Uh, and so he is the sinless son of God. God sent him forth, born of a woman, a true man, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That is, we were all under the curse of the law. We're going to see that in a moment. To redeem them. The word redeem there is a beautiful word. It's ex agorazo. Okay. Agorazo, you know, sometimes I don't know if we use in English the word agora. Maybe not. No, agoraphobia. Okay. There we, we have we have it in a phobia. All right. But the word uh, agora is the word for the marketplace. Okay. That's where you go to buy stuff. And agorazo means to go, it's a verb and it means to go and buy things out of the market. Ex agorazo means literally ex is like exit to take out of the marketplace because it's now yours. You can take it home with you. You've redeemed it. And that's where we get that word redemption. So Christ, that's the word that's used here is ex agorazo. I didn't want you to leave here without your Greek lesson today, as you know, you usually get when you show up. So ex agorazo, really good word to learn. And if you can say it, it it's just fun to say, actually. Okay, rolls off the tongue. It means to be to be bought out of the market, to be purchased and brought out. That's what Christ did for us. All right. So Christ has come and he has redeemed those who were under the law. That's what he redeemed us out from under. And in that sense, even, you know, the moral law can't condemn you. Christ died for your sins. He didn't die, for, you know, just only for, you know, non-compliance with ceremonies. If you were brought up in, in uh, in, the, in the Hebrew religion, when the Mosaic temple was still standing, he died for all your sins, all your violations. The law cannot condemn you. Even the Ten Commandments, for a believer, has stamped on it, paid in full. When God forgives our sins, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Some will say, well, if you teach people that, they're going to think they can just go out and sin all they want to. It's like if a person thinks that, they haven't had a work of grace done in their heart. When the Holy Spirit saves a person, when they're born again, they have a holy desire, a struggle ensues because their flesh is not yet redeemed and they have appetites and lust and things they have to deal with until Christ regenerates our physical bodies at the resurrection or his second coming. But in the meantime, our spirits have been born again and we delight in the law of God, Paul says, after the inward man. Why? Because it can't condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is, there's been a change made in them, and there's a new principle at work. And so Paul says here, Christ came to redeem ex agorazo, those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons or as sons. There's no impediment now for God to receive us as his very own children. We have this privilege of sonship. And some say, well, is this the same as the privilege of the son of God himself? And as far as his humanity is concerned, the answer is yes. You have the same standing before God as his son, Jesus Christ, because God receives you in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is never going to not be welcome in heaven because he is the son of God. And that means you will never be unwelcome either. God welcomes you. And so Paul goes on and says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son 
into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, as most people know now, it's the Aramaic word. It, it Sometimes it's translated daddy, and that's not bad. But, you know, sometimes people get, get a little too hip, you know, a little too cool. Um, and even somebody, <laughs> you know, if you want to see reform people raise their eyebrows, Start praying, call God daddy when you're praying and watch what happens. Um, you, you know, because it's, are you being respectful there when you say that? Well, there is an intimacy that we have with God in our innermost trials, in our struggles, in the, the things that make us afraid, the things that bring us to tears. We cry out just like a child, Abba, Father, Daddy, help. We cry out to Him. And also, not just that, because we, but because we love Him. You know, it's one thing, you know, those of you who are fathers know this. Uh, it's really neat when your children are real little. It's neat when they're older, too. When you come home and they go, Daddy, okay, they're glad to see you because they love you and, and they know you love them. And so for us, we have that relationship with God now because our sins have been forgiven. Because Christ, when he bought us, by the way, you know, if you're going to buy something, you know, that exagorazo aspect, that takes a payment, you can't buy stuff out of the marketplace unless you've paid for it. And that's what Christ did. He paid for our sins. He died for us. And so he says, we cry, Abba, Father. Therefore, he says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so he then reminds them of what they were. But he lets them know that you belong to God. Christ has redeemed us. This is what Christmas is really about, you know, if you think about it. Christ came, God sent forth his son. Christ came, born of a woman. That's what we're celebrating today. We're focusing on, I should say, we should celebrate that all the time. But we're focusing on that. Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, in Galatians uh, chapter 3, Paul says this very clearly. He gets on to the Galatians because of their foolishness of being led astray with this works gospel. He says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? That is in the preaching of the gospel in their hearts and minds, not through images or pictures or statues. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying, as the gospel was preached, you saw and understood that on that hill outside of Jerusalem, the Son of God took your sins upon himself. That is, he became your surety and the wrath of God that was against you fell on Jesus that day. He was clearly put in. Paul says, you, you, you understood that, that we're saved because Jesus died in our place. It's pretty simple. Even a child can understand that. He said, what happened? Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Then he says in verse two, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Did God give you his Holy Spirit to comfort you, to change you? Because you're so good at keeping his law, every aspect of your, uh, you know, every moment of your being, and every aspect of your life? And the answer, of course not. It's not by works of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, as Paul says in Romans 3. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He said, or by the hearing of faith, when you heard the gospel, you believed, and then God forgave your sins, declared you righteous, filled you with, or gave you and filled you with his Holy Spirit, and adopted you as his own child. 
So you received all this by faith, by the hearing of faith. So are you so foolish? He said, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You know, you got saved because of God's grace, because of his kindness, because of his love to you. Not because of your works, in spite of your works. And he's writing to the Galatians, and sadly, this applies to all of us most of the time because we try to bargain with God. Oh, Lord, I'll be good if you get me out of this. Just pray and ask him to get you out of it, okay? And then ask him to help you to be good and do what's right. But we try to go fall back on that covenant of works, thinking, well, I'll, I'll be good if you'll if you'll help me, Lord. And it's like, no, he'll, he'll help you because of Jesus, okay? And out of gratitude, then, you should begin to change. And he'll help you with that, too. And so he says, oh, you, you you began in the spirit. You began when you believed. So now you're going to be made perfect in the flesh. So now you think you're going to start keeping ceremonies and rituals and, uh, you know, all these religious type things. You know, we see in the Middle Ages how this just grew just horribly into all this work salvation of, you know, prayers to the saints, rosaries, pilgrimages, all the things, you know, fastings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, and fasting does have a legitimate aspect to it but if you're thinking god loves you more because you fast you don't understand what fasting is about uh, there are there is obedience to the commands of god but if you start thinking oh, well god loves me a little bit more because i keep the law <laughs> he's just being gracious and not showing you what a lousy law keeper you actually are even when you're obeying his law okay uh, god deals with us graciously he's the one that brings forth the good works in us so paul now though is saying you're going to be made perfect by the flesh, that is, by outward ceremonies. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Then he reminds them, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Okay, it's not physical descent. It's not keeping the law. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And then he lays it down really clear. And these next few verses are what we need to really consider. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So if someone says, someone says, well, you know, yes, we're saved, but you, you really need to keep the law of Moses. You need to keep those, you know, Jewish ceremonies. We see this among, by the way, some people that are Messianic uh, Christians, they call themselves, they're fine, okay? They believe exactly what the Bible teaches. They just have a Jewish tinge to it, or they're of Jewish background, and they want to evangelize. There's others who, well, I can't fellowship with you because you're not circumcised, or your church doesn't keep the... Saturday, Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, why do you guys do well? Because God really loves us more when we do that. Or they're just thinking in terms of they have to do it, not out of obedience, but uh, of faith, but to gain God's favor. And so they want to go back and, and keep the Jewish ceremonies and the kosher kitchens and all that. And it's like, that's just, that's not, that's not taught in the Bible, guys, not in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, actually. So know what Paul says, as many as are of the works of the law. He's not talking about those who want to obey the Ten Commandments, okay, to love their neighbor as themselves and to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Those commandments also show us we're sinners, by the way, because we don't do that as we like to or as we should. 
But he says, as many as are of the works of the law, that is thinking you're going to be justified, made righteous before God because you're complying with ceremonies and you're doing stuff. He said, you're under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone, note that, who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Okay, so that's from Deuteronomy chapter 27 at verse 26, uh, when Moses had the Israelites enumerate the, the curses and the blessings. The final one was, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law doesn't say, well, you know, if you're going to go by the, the, the law route, it's just keep some of them but not the others. It doesn't do that. It requires absolute, perfect obedience perpetually. And even if now somebody said, well, I'm going to start trying to do that. Well, you're past. Okay, if you're going to rely on works, then you obviously can't rely on the finished work of Christ because you're thinking it's you doing it, not Jesus. So Paul says, as many as are under the work or of the works of the law are under the curse. Because it, it requires everything, complete conformity. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Okay, Paul cites that in Romans also in here. It's also cited in the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now that's true of Jesus because he did all the things the law required. He never broke any of God's commands. But it's not true of us because we're born with corrupted natures because of the imputation of Adam's sin to us uh, at our conception. And then, you know, the wicked go astray speaking lies, okay, as soon as they're born. And so we are sinners. And so if you kept the law perfectly from the first moment of your conception, you'd be fine. But you're conceived as a sinner, as David says um, in Psalm 51. So the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? There's that word redeemed, huh? He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is why when we're talking about God's wrath being poured out on Jesus and the cup that it came from had your name on it because it belonged to you, it was God's wrath against your sins, that was given to Christ that was poured out upon him. The wrath of God, the hell that you deserve, Jesus took. What transpired at the cross is beyond our imagination to conceive the sufferings of Christ. It says that he, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. So there was clearly something of eternity in the death of Christ because he is an eternal person who suffered in his humanity. That's why his death can save us for eternity, because it's of infinite value. It's never going to lose its value. It's his sufferings on the cross that save us. And because of that, his body was broken, his blood was shed, his uh, could no longer sustain him, and he yielded up his spirit. He died. He became a curse for us. Uh, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that, that was written in the law in Leviticus um, that's why they were they were told if you hang someone on a tree, it doesn't go into the details of how they would be hung, you know. Um, but if someone was hanged on a tree, they had to be taken down 
the same day. And then it says, because whoever is hanged is accursed of God. This is the stumbling block for the Jewish people. When we say Jesus is the Messiah and he was cursed of God for us. They're like, how can the Messiah be cursed? Paul says to the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. To the Romans, it's foolishness, or the Greeks, you know, it was foolishness to them. What are you talking about, a crucified Messiah? But to the Hebrews or the Jews, it was an offense, the idea. You're going to say that the Messiah himself, the Messiah of Israel, was cursed? It's like, yes, he took our curse. And we're not making this up. It's what the prophets said. Read Isaiah 53. He bore the sins of many. He took the curse that belonged to us. This is what Paul is saying. And why did he do that? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Note that. How do you receive the promise that the Holy Spirit would be in you, change you, transform you, and be with you forever? How do you receive that? By faith, trusting in Jesus. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says your sins are forgiven. That's John 3.16. Everybody knows that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Note again the idea gave. What a gracious God we have. He gave his only begotten son. That's the gift we need to receive at Christmas and every day. That whosoever, what? <coughs> does all the works of the law? No, we can't do that. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have not just life, everlasting life. And remember how Jesus defined eternal life or everlasting life in John 17, 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It means to know his love, to know his fellowship, to know his comfort. Christ is with us. You know, he's Emmanuel. We sang about that earlier. <coughs> Christ is God with us. He's the son of God. He's with us. There's no, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken away the thing that could separate us and had separated us, and that was our sin. It's gone. Before God, it's forgiven. And you say, well, why does it say to confess us? It's because we break fellowship with God often. You know, how can two walk except they be agreed? <clears throat> and so in our Christian life, we are called to confess our sins. It's not so that we can be saved. If you're really saved and you're trusting in Christ, you you have that fellowship, but you're, you're besetting sins, walking contrary, like the disciples when they needed their feet washed. Jesus said, he just washes clean every whit, okay? But he still washed their feet because walking through this world, they got dirty, okay? As Christians, as we live our lives, we have to contend with the flesh. We still have lust and desires. We get angry. We say things we shouldn't say. We allow thoughts to stay in our heads that should not be there. We're looking at stuff we shouldn't look at. We're listening to things we shouldn't be listening to. We're doing stuff we shouldn't be doing. And the way you get rid of that stuff is taking it to Jesus and saying, Lord, forgive me. Remember 1 John? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful because he's promised. So you can take him at his word. He said he will forgive you. And he's just. There's a basis in justice for God to forgive your sins because they've already been paid for. So you can go to God and say, Father, your son died for my sins, and I'm really struggling here. I've got a besetting sin, whether an attitude or an action or a thought, whatever it is. You can go to say, Lord, I need this rotten filth out of my life. I, you know, I, and you need to look at sin as just at that. You know, we see the 
the guilt of sin, we need to understand how ugly it is, the ugliest, the filth of sin. The world makes sin look great. You know, oh, hey, you want to be happy? You know, do this, that, or the other, okay? We, we need to see in the presence of a holy God, you know, the attitudes and the actions and the words and the thoughts that are displeasing. We need to see it's really ugly stuff. And if we'll be honest with ourselves, that's what confession means, by the way. The word confess, it's actually related to the word homiletics, okay, to, to freely proclaim. To go before God and be honest with him. Say, Lord, this really is ugly. It really is sin. I'm sorry for it, Lord. Your son died for me. I want this out of my life. Please help me. And if you have to go back a hundred times, if you have to go back a thousand times, keep going back. Your sins are forgiven. Some, you know, I've used this illustration before. Some spots are like stains in a carpet. They're just hard to get out. And it takes a lot of scrubbing. Okay. But the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us from all sin. That's why John said right before that, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us literally is cleansing us from all sin. Paul said, sin will not have dominion over you if you're not under the law, but under grace. So you can go to God and you say, well, I feel unworthy. You are unworthy. And if you wait till you get worthy, you're never going to come. Christ calls the unworthy to come to him. That's what this is all about. We come to him. We say, Lord, I'm unworthy in and of myself, but you've sent your son to buy me out from underneath the, the condemnation of hell. You to purchase me by his precious blood. And now you say, I've received the adoption as a son. It's a good thing to say, Lord, I want to know more about this. <laughs> okay. Get a little bit curious spiritually. Lord, I want to know what it means to really be your son, to be your child. Okay. For the ladies here, you can say your daughter, but the adoption of sonship is with the idea. It's not you know, neglecting the ladies. It's saying that you men and women in Christ Jesus have received this privilege that, the son, the firstborn son has the right of inheritance and your place in the home. That's yours, given to you because of Jesus. And so Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And that's why Paul is able to say in chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come, at the right time, the perfect timing, God knew when he's in control of all things. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, perfect redeemer, born of a woman, born under the law. He came in the perfect manner because that's what was needed to redeem those who were under the law. That was our problem. We needed to be redeemed out from the curse of the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And it happened. You know, so there's a twofold purpose there, okay? To redeem those who are under the law and that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so Christ has paid the price and he's sent the gospel out into the world and those who hear shall live, he said. And so uh, when we hear the, the call of the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven and you are God's child, and you have eternal life. We say, yes, Lord, yes, I do believe. That's God's work in you, beloved. You don't do that of your own accord. The Holy Spirit's doing that. So we have great reason to thank God and really thank him for sending his son into the world to redeem us because he's done it. Christ died for us, and he rose again because he took away all the sins imputed to him. 
You know the gospel story. Death couldn't hold him. It had no claim on him because there was no more sin attached to him. It had been legally imputed to him, our sin. Once it was paid for, he had no sin. Death had no claim on him, so he rose again from the dead. He's ascended into heaven in his humanity, and he represents you there. Legally, you're already in heaven. It says that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're co-seated with him in the heavenlies. So you're pretty secure, beloved. Maybe you might not feel it that sometimes, but you are. So rejoice. We've got a lot to be thankful for. So, you know, it's nice when we get Christmas presents. It's nice when we can give Christmas presents. How wonderful it is what God has given to us in the gift of his son. I hope and pray that we'll all receive it this day and give him thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd bless us now. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world at the perfect time, Lord, in the fullness of time, for dying for our sins even before we were born, Lord, because you knew all things. You knew we would need that forgiveness. And we thank you that you rose again from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that you had the gospel go forth in the world. Lord, you sent it out. Before you ascended into heaven, you commissioned the apostles. We thank you, Lord, you raised up those faithful men who preached the word and others, Lord, followed suit. And for 20 centuries now, here we are, Lord. We worship you this day, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray you'd work in us, work in us as individuals, work in us as families, and work in us as a local church, Lord, so that we would love you and love one another. And we give you thanks, Father, for your inexpressibly wonderful gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and all the blessings and goodness that comes to us through him. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.